Hi again. Welcome back to Mirror with a Memory, a podcast exploring the intersection of photography, surveillance, and artificial intelligence, and the significant ways in which artists are contributing to that space. I'm your host, Martine Sims. This is our sixth and final episode, and we can start by stating the obvious. There are lots and lots of nefarious ways in which photography, surveillance, and artificial intelligence can converge to give governments and corporations entirely too much power. We've talked about this as it relates to biometrics, policing, privacy, the environment. But power dynamics can change quickly, and even those without power can become empowered. That's what we ultimately want to talk about as we bring this conversation to a close. Let's start with the public and their fears around the places in their lives and in our world where photography, surveillance, and artificial intelligence intersect. We surveyed members of our community for their personal takes. They had a lot to say. Who do I think is accessing my photographs online? Oh man, uh, the government? <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, I think, you know, dudes, you know, you got my first name so you can just Google me. Like, they're already weird enough on Instagram. I feel like, yeah, the government and weirdos. I think surveillance technology is super creepy. The tools that I'm most worried about are honestly like the things that I have in my home. You know, I have a phone and a computer and that's like about as far as I'll go. I'm never going to get like an Alexa or something. Those things scare me so much. I think it's so creepy. I don't have grand fears around surveillance technology. But I do have a concern that there are conclusions drawn and profiles made about someone that, that probably wouldn't be fully accurate. My biggest fear is, is just the fact that very soon, you know, I'm, you're literally going to be on camera 24-7, 365, like literally constantly surveilled. Like, there are cameras in your house, there's cameras in stores, there's cameras on your computer. We're going to be living a uh, science fiction story. It won't be science fiction, it'll be science truth. We will be tracked to the point where people will know where we're going, when we're coming. They'll even know our patterns to the point of where we're going to be expected next. I think we're already there. We all assume that Big Brother is watching, so to speak, and knows everything, but they might know enough to paint a very poor picture and one that you would not like of yourself in isolation of everything else that makes up a human being and a life. We have very little control over what is seen and what is heard and then what is collected on us. And that's almost scarier than someone or some entity being able to get the whole picture. I would say my biggest concern about surveillance technology is the idea of the photograph, the idea of the camera. And I use that in the expansive sense where a camera can be an experimental vessel to capture data. And my, my biggest concern with surveillance technology is like, you don't get context. You get a stoppage of time and you get that frame of time. And you can only provide an analysis of that frame of time without knowing what happened before and after. In our last episode, we heard from a writer and scholar named Arthur Holland Michel. I am a senior fellow at the Carnegie Council for Ethics in International Affairs. 
Let's stay on the dark side for a moment with Arthur and zoom out and up again, because Arthur's focus on aerial surveillance is an important consideration in any conversation about power and tech. As Arthur mentioned in our previous episode, the idea of flight and a bird's eye view has enticed humans for centuries. But when it comes to surveillance and some of the concerns we just heard about from the public, aerial photography and its increasing sophistication and availability add new layers of intrusion. Add in AI and it gets even more complicated. When I was writing the book, Eyes in the Sky, I I was looking specifically at a subset of aerial surveillance technologies called wide area motion imagery, which in contrast to a traditional aerial surveillance camera that operates sort of like a telescope, these cameras can watch a whole city at once. They are absolutely massive. And you would think that that is a tremendous surveillance power that any organization wishing to watch and by extension control the object of their interest would would definitely want to have it. It's a no-brainer. But there is a challenge that arises with collecting so much information. And I should say aerial information is data rich. Someone needs to analyze all of that information. You need human eyes to actually look at every single pixel to determine what is going on on the ground. Obviously, if you have a camera large enough to watch an entire city, you need a lot of people to do that, a lot of eyeballs on the image, which isn't practical, not even for an organization as large and well-funded as the Department of Defense. And so the instinct has been to turn to artificial intelligence to do the watching for us, to revert to machine vision, to generate information from this data. That's significant because if you crack that technological challenge of replacing human eyeballs with computers that do not get tired, that do not get stressed, that do not get distracted, you are, in a sense, unlocking the whole Pandora's box of aerial surveillance. We live in a world where a lot of data is already collected about us and on us. And so even though we are constantly generating data we're able to enjoy a certain degree of anonymity because there are simply not enough eyeballs to track our every move. If that act of tracking is outsourced to a computer, then really anybody who has the power and interest in seeing your every move could in theory just click a button and do exactly that. If you think about that superpower in the hands of, say, an oppressive government, it's not that hard to see how it could be extremely troubling. Perhaps a government wants to track a specific political group. All they have to know is the location of a student meeting for a party that they have some opposition to. And from that, they can track all of the individuals who leave that party and suddenly get an automatically generated network map 
of their adversary, something that would have taken a lot of time and resources to achieve in an earlier age. It gets to a, a, a broader point, which is that at, at the moment, the, the biggest threat to privacy and civil liberties is not so much the collection of data in any format, but the automation of the processing of that data. That's where suddenly you, you can see surveillance begin happening on a truly industrialized scale, which in, in the wrong hands is purely a, a nightmarish prospect. AI's role in this type of data collection and data analysis is significant and scary, but it can come into play when reversing these power dynamics too. As does a term I learned about through the work of one of our episode two guests, scholar and writer Simone Brown. I first came across the term surveillance in Simone Brown's book, Dark Matters. My understanding of surveillance is that the sur means above or over, and that's why we think about it as a kind of state like corporations or the police or, you know, whatever, evil corp, panopticon. The valence part is from valer, to watch, or vigilare in Latin, to keep watch. So then surveillance. In contrast, su means below, in contrast to the state. So it, that means like peers watching or keeping watch, recording. So that's people around you at a protest, let's say, filming. That's a kind of surveillance. I'm interested in surveillance because it is a kind of plurality of images. Typically, Surveillance, you know, immediately when you say surveillance, you have an image that pops up. You kind of think of this closed circuit television. There's an angle that's a part of it. There's a way you see the cameras. And it sort of provides like an official record. I'm interested in more subjective experience, the lived experience. Surveillance kind of gets to that for me. I'm also interested in embodied photography and embodied filmmaking. And surveillance is often handheld, closer contact. There are certain formal qualities to it. Back in episode three, Evidence, we talked to American artist, an artist and educator who explores black labor and visibility and the history of race in America through their work. Surveillance is a concept they've thought about a lot as well. This notion of surveillance as the opposite of surveillance in that it's those without the power looking up and observing the oppressor, to put it really bluntly, or these acts of resistance by observing. I want to also talk a little bit about that idea of dark surveillance because it's a really interesting idea in that it's thinking specifically about race relations and and racism and the racial gaze and adding this third dimension onto this plane of valence, which is a racialized one, 
this act of dark surveillance being a sort of act of resistance against racism through acts of letting others know, particularly, you know, letting Black people know when there is an imminent threat of captivity, you know, so different means and tools of creating that awareness. So maybe like a really obvious example is the Green Book that was a book used to tell Black people that were driving where it was safe to stop, you know. So tools such as these that are used to sort of undermine, particularly along the lines of racialized gaze and the potential of captivity. And I think it's it's a really captivating idea and to think about valence and all forms of valence uh, with this additional layer of racialization and thinking about how that complexifies our entire relationship to valence and that it's never just a mundane or single directional thing. You know, there's always these other layers to it. Surveillance can also be a way of truth-seeking via aggregation and consensus, which feels especially important in a moment when the very notion of truth is under assault. To dig into this, we turn to Forensic Architecture, an artist-activist-technologist group that's at the forefront of using photography, surveillance, and artificial intelligence to formalize and verify collective acts of surveillance, holding states, corporations, and institutions accountable for their misdeeds. I spoke with Forensic Architecture founder, Eyal Weitzman, about all this. My name is Eyal Weitzman. I was trained as an architect and gradually drifted into human rights investigations. I now run an agency called Forensic Architecture. We are based primarily at Goldsmiths, University of London, but also in different places worldwide. And we undertake investigations into state violence, state and corporate violence. I guess I kind of started forensic architecture well before the agency was established. I was working as an architect in the human rights movement in Palestine, a network of many closely knit uh, organizations, Palestinians, international and Israeli, that oppose Israeli colonization in Palestine and the human rights violations that are associated with them. I said I did it as an architect. That means that I was mapping out the Israeli settlement project in the West Bank and Gaza, the way the settlements were built uh, in order to control and survey and actually limit the sort of Palestinian habitat within those areas. So I was looking at human rights violation through architecture and understood that architecture is not only a discipline for building and designing houses or cities, but actually a field of knowledge and a way in which we can experience the world and understand it and represent it. And wrote human rights report that effectively criminalized, if you like, the work of Israeli architects building in a settlement, so working with the military and producing evidence. And that was all throughout the early 2000s, around 2010, other kind of developments manifested themselves. Firstly, there was all of a sudden new type of evidence that became available to human rights investigators. And these were images and videos 
that were posted by the people that experienced violence firsthand and were posted on all sort of like social media websites like YouTube and Facebook. And the problem was actually to use this very raw material, very heartfelt, very experiential material. But that material was a raw material that had to be synchronized and had to be located and had to be verified. And slowly I realized that in order to analyze this media flotsam we were swimming, gradually swimming in, we need uh, architecture to help us do that. So architectural models became the medium within which we could locate those videos and those photographs. Imagine something happens, an incident happens, a police brutality. Israeli police shoots unarmed Palestinians somewhere. And on the scene, there are anything around between a dozen and two dozen cameras. Most of them switch on after the incident happened, but still capture important things. But some of them might have been filming in another direction or something else at the same time that the shots were fired and captured either the sound of the shot or sometimes rarely, uh, but sometimes uh, it happens, they capture the person being shot or the person doing the shooting. But what one needs to do is to establish relations between those. When we look at each one of those videos separately, there is a limited amount of information that we can draw from it. Investigations start when you build relation between videos. Every video is like a doorway to another video. In every video you would see a detail that could help interpret or understand what exists in the video next to it. So for example, one video would simply show us people running away from the scene. Another video would show us a jeep coming in, a military jeep coming in. Another one would just capture a drone in the sky. Another one would be of the person being uh, hurt, perhaps on the ground. Another video would be of, of another bystander trying desperately to call for medical services or for an ambulance. And you need to build them together into an image of what has happened there. You need to look at all those perspectives simultaneously and to understand the relation between video one and video two and video N. To a certain extent, architecture all of a sudden became like an optical device for us because the minute we could build a very precise three-dimensional model, we could locate each one of those videos precisely where it was in the model and precisely the point of view of the camera and play it and show how all the cameras are moving in space in relation to each other and start navigating from one video to the next. That is to say, architecture becomes an optical instrument, the only way to make sense of the multiplicity and variation within this material. So that is really how we started. And when we started, around 2010, 2011, Really, you had three or four videos, if you were lucky, around each incident. Today, when we are working with groups of protesters in Hong Kong or with groups of protesters in the U.S. in the Black Lives Matters protest, 
we are sometimes confronted with hundreds of simultaneous videos that are not several seconds long anymore, but could be two hours long. They could be like live feeds. And human vision is essential to that, but in order to interpret them, you need help. We cannot employ hundreds of people to look at hundreds of videos every day. We need to automate part of that process, and the way in which we automate it is by training machine learning classifiers to do the first triage, if you like, the first kind of pass over that material and tell us, do you see a tear gas canister? Or let us know in which frame amongst all those thousands of videos you could see a particular tear gas canister, a particular gun, a particular type of vehicle, or somebody being hurt, or somebody shouting, etc. And then that would pass on to a human researcher who would actually verify and stitch together with other videos. One thing I was thinking about just when I was going through your work, Ayala, is this question of verification, especially in light of, for example, the Breonna Taylor verdict or many other verdicts before then where you do have a lot of evidence, let's say, or you have video, or you can verify this information, and it seems to not matter. I was just curious if you could talk about your process of verification, but then also this insistence upon the truth. I loved how you described truth as a common resource, something that we need to understand our place in the world. And as it's in constant assault (laughs) lately, um, I thought that'd be a good place to start. This is really at the heart of our practice. So initially, I would start by saying that when I say to colleagues at Goldsmiths that I wanted to or that I've just established a a, a forensic institute, people go like, what? Are you wanting to work like the police? Isn't that what we are always almost instinctively in social movements against, no, that kind of authority. And indeed, it's completely against my instinct to do that because in a way that I grew up in the anti-colonial movement in Palestine, the official truth, capital T, was what the state was saying to us about the fact that There isn't really a colonial project. There isn't really an occupation. It's not an occupation. There are no human rights violations. The Nakba, that is to say the expulsion of Palestinians from Palestine in 1948, didn't really happen. People just ran away. And I realized that, in a sense, if we are to engage in truth practices, let's say, it's not enough to just contest the facts that the government established. But to think about different ways of arriving at the truth, at arriving at facts, because the way in which we are used to receive facts is really by trusting the institutional authority of agencies that are certified to do that. So in a completely paradoxical way, we find ourselves sometimes very similar to those, what, what is called like the post-truthers or, you know, the, those people that accuse experts as fake news in the world, etc. In an almost dangerous way, similarly, we're saying, 
most of what, you know, we go against established truth, we go against vested interests, we go against the mainstream institutional authority to, to dispense effects. We go against the police, we go against the, the court, the legal system, we go against other state agencies, etc. We actually establish an alternative way of truth production that is open, that is a bit more democratic, that is not relying on expertise, but relying on the hard work of demonstrating how verification works. So I think that the question goes towards this sort of methodology that we developed called open verification, by which we say, to establish truth, we do not go through the main gatekeepers of truth practices, but we work directly with the communities that experience violence. Their testimony, their video is the main thing we work with and is the most important and precious evidence that we have. Very often, by the way, delivered with great risk and great difficulty. Then with an open kind of network of volunteers, of people that stand in solidarity with the people that experience violence. And actually, rather than create a closed box, a kind of a laboratory with a sort of hygienic kind of relation to evidence in which the, all the rituals of privileged access to truth are being exercised, do it in the open, announce that we do it, and integrate as many points of view as we can into it, this sort of polyperspectival approach to truth in which there is no privileged position to look at, but a wide multiplicity of situated perspectives, of situated partial, sometimes partisan perspectives that add up and create the fabric of verification that we need. Because when you are establishing facts, the videos that are truthful, the videos that are not fake, would agree with each other, would have a hinge to another video, and the testimonies would align. And when something is actually being manipulated, it will obviously often kind of fall out of that very fragile network. What Ial is proposing and enacting with his colleagues and collaborators at Forensic Architecture is a kind of aggregation emerging out of machine learning. They're building their own data set from both official state and satellite sources and user-generated photographs and videos captured out in the field, then analyzing that information. When the images and videos connect in some way, they can start to verify an event with arguably more and better information than that of official channels. Sometimes you guys work with a journalistic output operation like the New York Times. Sometimes you're working with something like Amnesty International. And there's also obviously this very robust art context. And I was curious how those different contexts maybe shape both the work, if they do, and the audience that you're speaking to. And then also, since there is this political and humanitarian element to your work, what is the benefits of putting that research in an art context? Yeah, this is, this is a really crucial question for us because when we exercise something that we call counter forensics, meaning both 
to investigate state crimes, to investigate the investigators, investigate the police force, the secret services, the military, etc. But it also means a different methodology, so the counter-methodology to, to state one. And then when you do investigate the police or investigate the prosecution, it's much harder for us to get into the official forms of accountability, the sort of state forms of accountability, like the courts or parliamentary inquiries or anything with a kind of like a government stamp on it, because sometimes they use the law to exercise violence. This is definitely my experience in Palestine, where the law is weaponized. The law is not neutral. So we need to find alternative fora, and therefore uh, art and cultural institutions are some of the most effective ones. And I think that this sort of like not perfect belonging, when you put something that is strange to a forum, is also a great potential because with it you can open up new ways of seeing, new ways of understanding things, new ways of discussing visual evidence and technology. There's a specific forensic architecture project we wanted to talk about, Triple Chaser a video work and investigation the group showed in the 2019 Whitney Biennial. It responded directly to an activist movement that grew out of the discovery that tear gas grenades produced by a company called Safari Land were being used against migrants on the U.S.-Mexico border, among other conflict zones. Safari Land was owned by former Whitney Museum Vice Chairman Warren B. Canders, which raised questions about the money he'd been giving to the museum. I was among the 50 participating artists in that biennial who publicly asked for Candor's removal from the board. A few months later, he resigned. I wanted to talk about Triple Chaser specifically and unpack this work as a really incredible use of artificial intelligence. And also, it's a way of allowing us to see something that is typically unseen or hard to see. So I was just wondering if you could describe Triple Chaser and then we can talk more about it. I guess that the work could not be really separated from the entire controversy and the entire set of protests and activism that happened around the dealings of the vice chair of the Whitney Board of Directors, Warren B. Candace. So if if we kind of used art and cultural forums as human rights forums or as kind of alternative accountability forum, at the Whitney, it was the first time that we encountered the actual complicity of members of an institution in human rights violation. So the, the, the whole story kind of evolved from the actual activism that was led by groups like Decolonize This Place and many others. Decolonize This Place is an activist group based in New York City that organizes in support of indigenous rights, black liberation, anti-capitalism, degentrification, and other causes. They've staged protests at many cultural institutions, including at the 2019 Whitney Biennial. 
And we were invited to do something else, but we realized we had to investigate the institution that invited us. Around the same time, people like Decolonizer's Place and others were kind of desperately looking online for evidence of where the munition that was manufactured by Safariland, this horribly titled company that Warren B. Candace owned that was manufacturing police equipment, including tear gas canisters, where was it being sold? When you export from the U.S. weapons or ammunition, lethal ammunition, that's all public record. You can find that where this material goes. But what is called less than lethal munition, you don't really have that on a public record. So you need to find photographs of those instances where this material is being deployed worldwide, say in Palestine, say in Mexico, in uh, other places where, where, where it was found. You need to find it in order to verify that, that a contract has been signed. But to look for it online amongst millions and millions and millions of videos and images, it would have taken years to do. So we decided to actually train a machine vision classifier to do the work for us. And usually the way you would do that is like teaching a child how to see. So anyone that has a kid, now, you know, you have like a toy train and you say, hi, oh, this is a train. And then you hold it from a slightly different perspective. You say, that's a train, that's a train. And the child kind of understands that the train is not that object from that perspective, but this train could be seen in the dark, in the light, in far, near, from above and below, and it's still a train. So you need to teach a machine how to see, and teaching how to see is all about the relation between sensation and cognition between sensing and sense-making. And that's a very interesting process because you start thinking about photosensitivity, about the way in which we are aestheticized and understand the world around us. So we used our toolbox, which is build an architectural model and use a 3D model of, uh, of a particular bit of munition. With it, we were able to generate almost infinite amount of images and tell the classifier, that's a triple chaser, that's a triple, this is also a triple chaser, here are 10 triple chasers, and even if you look at it from the other side, still a triple chaser, and repeat that process like thousands, tens of thousands, hundred thousands times. The video opens with footage from the Tijuana-San Diego border captured in November 2018, when U.S. border agents fired tear gas at migrants. David Byrne narrates. Forensic architecture is training a machine learning classifier to search for images of tear gas grenades manufactured by the Safariland group. A few minutes in, a seizure warning appears on the screen. Then a pile of 3D modeled tear gas canisters. There must be three dozen of them strewn and angled in all the various ways they might fall on the ground after they've been used. The canisters flash and reconfigure as background images cycle behind them in bright abstract patterns as we watch the machine learn to see these canisters at any possible angle, in any possible environment. What differentiates this dataset from other datasets we've talked about to date is that this one isn't based on existing images. It's based on synthetic, computer-generated images. Because this many photographs, 
of this many canisters and this many conflict zones simply don't exist. Forensic architecture also trained the classifier to recognize what is not a triple chaser grenade. Things like soup cans, beer cans, fire extinguishers, flashlights, water bottles, batteries. And they trained it to recognize the triple chaser in simulated real world environments. I wanted to ask about open source because I was going through all of the code, you know, that's very available on your website. It's really generous. And I guess I wanted to talk about that in relationship to the collaborative way that you made that work. And I guess how that fits in with it as a kind of activism because it had real effects. And sometimes I think I can feel on my cynical days if I'm working within an art context, and obviously there are constraints, there are whatever realities to where that money is coming from as well. I think, how do I work with this? How do I respond to it? And I just think it's a really interesting way of both the way you use artificial intelligence with the resources, but also how that is all open source. It's all available. People can read about it. And then there was a sort of collaboration, both artistically, but also politically. Yeah, I think, I think it's absolutely right. Initially, in order to get those models done, we needed collaboration from activists in Tijuana and in Palestine. So my very good friend, Emily Jassir, who runs an art space that I think very likely is the most tear gas art space in, in the world, just by the wall in Bethlehem. I had a pile of all sort of like canisters and threw remotely on, on the phones. She was kind of like showing, is that the one? Is that the one? And finally, we found the, the right one and she measured it for us. She photographed it for us. And from those videos, we were able to produce photogrammetry model, which is sort of three dimensional rendering of videos. So already the collaboration started there. So. It's never just a piece of work that is projected. It's everything. It's the piece of work. It's the news that we continuously updated. It's the relation with decolonized displays and with our colleagues in the museum. It's the decisions that were taken. It's the conversation. And I think that that indeed had uh, it contributed to, by no means it was the, the only thing, but it contributed to the decision of Warren B. Candace to, to resign. And it still resonates because it kind of challenges the very foundations of the way in which art is produced, the way in which art is displayed, the way in which it is asked to be radical, but still polite to the context. So that politeness is really, um, we all, I think, and you too, we, we, we gave up on it. I mean, we, that was not a polite participation. Forensic architecture's approach to surveillance imagery, to satellite imagery, to machine vision, all in service of identifying and verifying state violence, all with the goal of holding its perpetrators accountable. It gets at something foundational about any technology, especially photography. Every camera has its politics. Every camera has a point of view. Every camera has its history. Body cams and police dash cams and, and activist cameras and satellite images. And each one of them, you need to think in relation to the history of that practice. There's always 
a set of relations that, that go into the photographic event, meaning what is your relation to a photograph is not only what is registered in it, but how it was produced. What is the certain contract or agreement, implicit or explicit, between you and the person that has taken it? What kind of bonds it make? What kind of exchange of knowledge working with photography entail? So for us, we would like to think of photography as always a collective practice. That is to say, a relation between the people taking it, people analyzing, people advocating with, or the people litigating with it, and creating those kind of commons, aesthetic commons, if you like, photographic commons, that make us understand that the photographic event is not only pressing the shutter, pressing the button, and taking the photograph, but to work with photography is all those relations, social and political and activist and litigational, that go into that. And this is what we have to offer into that. I think that kind of interdisciplinarity is, is a very weak term to explain the sort of the process of open verification where each individual person or group of people that join into that common investigation bring a very specific individual situated perspective that is about what they could do, what they could experience, what they've seen, what is the unique experience that they bring about. And that is what enriches a reality, not reducing it to each one of those, not to the technique and not only to the experience. But bringing those together is, I think, the strength of the collaboration. This idea of open and transparent collaboration at the intersection of photography, surveillance, and artificial intelligence is exciting, and it addresses some of the core inequities that artists and researchers are trying to bring awareness to, and if possible, correct. In episode two, we spoke to the artist and researcher, Mimi Onuoha, about visibility and invisibility, and everything we don't know about how we're seen online. Here she is again with a final thought. When it comes to data collection in general, you have always these two different groups or two different entities. There is the group that is kind of collecting something that wants a thing to exist. And then there's the group that makes up the collected. And when those two groups are the same is when you have the least issues. Because <laughs> that means that the group that is actually doing the collection also will have a very clear, very clear understanding of what it means to be collected. And so the decisions that they make will, will be different depending on that. When those groups are different, when the group that is collecting something is different than the group that makes up the collected, then that is when you start to have all these different questions that emerge around power and access and so on. So I think that for me, that's how I, I try to like map these things out really in terms of just relationships of power. And I find myself often wondering, well, what does it take? I don't think that it has to be a zero sum game always. It's not necessarily that it has to be like this group will only have this agency in control this group will only have that it's not always like that but what does it take to change that or what does it take to kind of disrupt that in some way it seems to me like that is the place to focus on sometimes aside from its kind of artistic merits or personal merits i feel like why am i using all this technology like I could make my life much simpler 
never dealing with machine learning or artificial intelligence again. I could just take a photo or not be concerned with that. I knew there was this relationship between institutions, corporations, states, and artistic work. But talking with everybody, I guess I saw more of how it's useful and how it is kind of a space of progress and hope. Hope always feels like a weird word to me, <laughs> but optimism. I find a sense of optimism in the fact that these things are in flux and that we can change them. We dictate how these technologies get used. And right now, the internet for years, but especially right now, it's kind of given people a voice to say, we don't like that, or to hold corporations, institutions, the state accountable in some ways. Our use, the way we use the technology, our actions around the technology shape what it is and shape what it will become. So we have this power to say, no, we don't like that, or we'd rather do this. You know, I always think about like with Twitter, there was no reply function when it was first built. That was added in because that's how people use the tool. And so we can determine how these tools look, feel, work, what's acceptable, what's unacceptable based on our actual use of them. And that's why I want people to use them more, you know, like take some ownership over it. I'm excited about that. I've been holding on to the idea that we can dream a new future and that not being able to do that is a lack of imagination and it just requires a lot of work, obviously, and activity, but first and foremost, we have to be able to like see it and envision it and dream it and imagine it, and then we can work towards that. So I think this kind of radical imagining that we talked about is inspiring to me and is kind of keeping me alive right now. Thank you for listening to Mirror with a Memory, a production of the Hillman Photography Initiative at Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh. For more information on the ideas and individuals featured in this episode and the rest of the series, please visit cmoa.org slash podcast.